wonder if you've ever been lied to. If you've lived longer than five minutes, you're probably like, yes. Um, and if you, if you haven't realized that you've been lied to, you're the worst off of all of us. Because <laughs> uh, you'll find out soon. Um, you know that feeling of being lied to, right? What does it do? It, it feels like a gut punch, right? It, it feels like something hollows you out, like somehow you've been treated as undignified, as insignificant, as not worthy of the truth, like you've been cheated, like it does something to you when someone lies to you, right? The reality is that some of us here this morning are in the current state of believing lies that we are being told. To the extent that you believe that there is joy, that there is happiness found anywhere other than God, or that there's happiness anywhere in any sense greater than the happiness that we have in God, you are believing a lie. To the extent that you believe, you want you to be happy more than God wants you to be happy, you are believing a lie. And the reality is that Satan is the father of lies. He's been a liar from the beginning. That's how Jesus describes him. A liar from the beginning, the father of lies. He births this lie, the lie that sin, whatever is against God's desires and design is somehow more for your happiness than God's will and plan for you. The truth is that God wants you to be happy, and to the extent that you believe that, you will be armed and equipped to fight temptation to sin. Okay, so this is, this is my goal for our time this morning is this. I want you uh, to learn to believe God and to doubt Satan. This is at the heart of fighting temptation. Who is actually in it for your joy? Who is telling you the truth about where to be happy? Because what motivates all of us is... is the pursuit of happiness. As Pascal said famously, each of us are pursuing our own happiness, even the man who hangs himself. So if you believe that God is for you and for your joy, that Satan is lying and against you, then my goal, my hope for our time is that by the time you walk out of here today, you will be equipped with tools to process the lies that will be thrown at you in every temptation you will ever face in your life. <laughs> Big claim, right? Now, how you apply the principles, that's going to be up to you. But I'm trying to give you the tools so that you will be prepared to face every temptation to sin you will ever face. We're going to do that under, under three headings or three statements really this morning. The, the first one, the first statement is this. God has shown me that he wants me to be happy. He's shown me. 
He's proven this to me already. If I've got eyes to see, he's made it clear. And we've seen this already in Genesis 1 as God created all things. By the time God creates, he orders, he puts everything in place. And at the end of Genesis 1, the climax of it, when God steps back and looks at all of it, do you remember what he says? In, in chapter 1 and verse 31, he says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so what does God do with his very good creation that's, that's beautiful and functional and ordered and all of it? He does this in chapter 2 and verse 9. He gives Adam a home and a job to work this garden and this is the way it's described, chapter 2, verse 9. Out of the ground, the Lord God, Yahweh God, made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything that's good, everything that's pleasant, everything is bountiful and overflowing. God even gave him a wife. Love this perfect relationship. Chapter 2, verse 23. After looking for a partner and not finding one, God gives one to him. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I love this. He, he gives him a garden and a job to work it and to keep it. He gives him a wife. So he's got a home, a job, a wife. Everything in all of creation is spread out before him. The family is happy. And it's all done at the end of the sixth day. So that the first morning Adam and Eve wake up is what? It's the seventh day, which means they wake up to rest. The first day of their existence is like, oh, sweet, a day off. We were created to live in the good of all that God has done for us, to enjoy his presence, to enjoy his goodness, and to rest in him. This is what we were created for. This is what God sets him up for. In all of his provision, God has shown us that he wants us to be happy. Not just in his provisions, but in his commands too. Even when God gives Adam a command, like we tend to think, this side of Genesis 3, we tend to think commands are bad. Why are you going to command me to do something? Even the commands were for his good. Chapter 2 and verse 15, Yahweh God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and keep it, to protect it and cultivate it so that it's going to grow and flourish and bless him and bless more people. And Yahweh commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of any tree of the garden. That is a good command. In, in my home, when someone says, eat, I say, amen. This is a good command. God gives him all the, all the food and says, eat. But the tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Is that a bad command? No. Why does God give it? Because in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Even the commands he gives are for his life and his flourishing and his protection. In his provisions, in his commands, he shows us he wants us to be happy but also in our longings. This is worth contemplating a little bit, probably with more time than what we've got to give to it this morning, but the reality is that Adam and Eve, even in the garden, experienced longing. Longing for something that is greater than merely this earthly experience that they have come to know. And I think on the one hand, that can seem confusing. 
on the other hand, I think we get it. I think we get it. Because the longings that we experience, sometimes we experience deep longings in moments of tragedy and sorrow and heartache. But the deepest, the deepest longings for the most beauty and the most of God, the most hope of eternal life, when does it come? Doesn't it come in the sweetest moments? When everything begins to actually approximate the way it should be just for a glimpse, just for a moment. You're at a wedding and you see a bride and a groom. I'm at a wedding yesterday and I see a bride and a groom who I love. And I'm rejoicing in the moment and these two coming together. And then Pastor Nick reads Revelation 21 about the real bride and the real groom united together in new creation. And I'm weeping. Why? Because the longings are stirred. It's happy. It's a good thing. But it's stirring greater longings. This is... This is what C.S. Lewis writes. He says this in a letter to his friend. He says, thinking about death, he says, About death, I go through different moods. But the times when I can desire it are never, I think, those when this world seems harshest. On the contrary, it's just when there seems to be most of heaven already here that I come the nearest to longing for the, the, the patriot, the, the heavenly homeland. It's the bright frontispiece. It's the beautiful cover to the book that, that wets one to read the story itself. All joy, all our longings here, the aching here for the fulfillment, distinct from mere pleasure and still more amusement. The joy emphasizes our pilgrim status. It always reminds, always beckons awakens desire our best havings our wantings all the things that God has given showing to us that he is for us the greatest of all of them is a desire for more let me pause and contemplate for a minute here when you think about God, if you, if you talk to someone on the street who doesn't know God and you talk to them about God, do you think the first thing that comes to the front of their mind is going to be, oh God, he's the guy who's for my pleasure. <laughs> what about if you talk to another Christian in this room, but like before the sermon started and I gave the answers away. We don't often contemplate this reality, and it weakens us, I think, against the temptations to sin. The reality is before God is against us in his anger, or his wrath, or his discipline, God is for our joy. This is who he is. God made Adam. He put him in a perfect place, gave him everything to live and to thrive, to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. God has shown us he's for our joy. He's for our happiness. That's, that's, that's God's case. That's God's statement. Now, now what about Satan? Here's the second heading is, is this. Satan's lie promises to make me happy. It promises to make me happy. Those longings that you have that God has not yet fully satisfied, you can find the answers to that in sin, in my ways, in following me. This is how he comes to the man and the woman. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. Can I just say something? I was 
chuckling with my wife this week. We were talking about this passage, and I said, this is strange. I read a story about a snake talking to people and tempting them to sin by eating a fruit. And that doesn't seem weird at all to me. Like, I'm so used to it. If you're here as an unbeliever, and that's like, this seems weird, um, I get it. And that's, that's okay. But what I want to say is, is simply this. Rather than going through and, and trying to defend the reality of these things um, in, in some kind of like mythological or mythical way, what I want to say is simply this. It's not strange that a God who creates the universe simply by speaking can also have talking animals. I also want to say there's all kinds of symbolic elements woven throughout the narratives in the Bible, especially here in the beginning chapters of Genesis. Now, we don't have to parse out in this moment what's symbolic and what's reality. Suffice it to say, don't let that be an obstacle to you hearing the importance of this story. Because one thing Satan would love for you to do is get caught up on the fact that, oh, there's a snake talking. I'm not going to listen to the rest of this. Okay, just move past that. If it helps you, just move past it. And listen, because what actually happens has so much significance for understanding the world that you live in and the challenges that you face. Okay? So this serpent is associated with Satan throughout the scriptures from this point on. It was more crafty. And the word for crafty, um, it sounds devious, right? It sounds nefarious. Like he probably had some weird, like, sly grin as he was talking and, um, we read back all kinds of stuff we know about snakes, like they're gross, um, back into the narrative, but they weren't at that point, right? So, so, like, so, so the serpent comes, he's more crafty, but the word for crafty just means wise. It means cunning. It means shrewd. It, it doesn't have any negative connotations, and that adds to the deception, right? The serpent's talking, and he just seems wise. He seems like he understands the way of things. Is he good? Is he bad? Everything else in creation's bad, so why would we assume that the serpent's bad? So it opens the door for the temptation. He's, he's wise. He's cunning. More so than any other beast of the field, which should tip you off that there's a, a problem. As we've seen already, when we think about order, man was created. He was given the word. Adam was given the word and entrusted with it and told to rule over creation, including the beast of the field. But here there's a beast of the field working against not only God, but also man and coming to the woman instead of man asking the woman to be the representative. He said to the woman... Did God actually say? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. What a snake. <laughs> what, a, what a weird way to put that. Why did he word it like that? He worded it like that. He knows it's not true. He knows that's not what God said. He worded it like that to make God seem as bad as possible, but also sneakily to do this, to make the woman feel righteous in her own mind, because now she gets to stick up for God. No, 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 no. That's not what God said. The woman said to the serpent, we may, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. He's not that bad, but God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. We could just point out a couple things. God didn't say you may eat. He said surely eat. He said have it in abundance. Have all of it. Take all of it and have as much as you want. He gave them in abundance. But she's, she's minimized what God has actually given them. And made, oh, we may eat. We're loud. He's okay with it and maximized what she's been denied. Oh, the tree that's in the midst of the garden. You 
ever notice the one thing you're not allowed is like the thing that's right front and center, like in front of you? The one tree that's in the middle of, actually there were two trees in the middle of the garden, the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But right now, she only sees one, the tree that's right in the middle. That's the one I'm not allowed. So in this moment, even as she's standing up for God, he's not that bad. She's also realizing God actually has denied me something that I think I maybe don't like him denying me. So there's two lies here in Satan's temptation, at least two. The first lie is this. You should doubt God's heart. If you want to find happiness, real happiness, doubt his heart. The serpent said in verse 4 to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows. Here's the real reason why he gave you the commandment. He knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll become like God. You'll know good and evil. Like God, in the opening chapters of Genesis, everything he creates, he separates, separates, separates. He evaluates. He declares, this is good, this is not. This is good, this is not. And as he goes, and now Satan is saying to Eve, you too can be like God and you can make proclamations and stand over and above. You can determine right and wrong for yourself. You can determine what's good, can't you? God doesn't want you to be like him, but he knows you can be. He doesn't want you to determine what happiness will be for yourself. He's holding back from you what is best for you. You should doubt his heart. He's not in this for you. The second lie in the temptation then is this. Disobey his word to find true happiness. Doubt his heart. And the next step, once you doubt his heart, is to disobey his word to find real happiness. So the woman, verse 6, the woman saw when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Guys, God already said that about all the fruit. He already, he already declared that in chapter 2 and verse 9. Of course it was good because God is good. But now she sees something of the distortion of Satan. See, this is good. And she's like, yeah, it is good. I see that it's, it's good to eat. It's a delight to the eyes. To desire to make one wise, crafty, like this serpent. She took of its fruit and ate. She disobeyed. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They thought they'd become like God and no good and evil, like like to make declarations over creation. They, they, they thought they would know cancer like an oncologist. I can tell you all the things. In reality, they came to know it as a patient with a terminal diagnosis. The disease they thought they could diagnose and cure has infected them and will kill them. See, the lie here is that God's commands are given to oppress you and to deny you happiness. Satan's temptation is to call you to trust, like this woman, like Eve, the first woman, to trust in your intuitions. To trust in your impressions when she saw rather than to trust in God's instructions. And to believe the best of God's intentions. I want to tell you a couple truths about Satan's lies too, okay? Here's a truth about Satan's lie. Sin will never give you happiness. 
You, you see that in the text, right? At the end of chapters 1 and 2, when God created and everything was great and life was flourishing and the man and his wife were naked and unashamed and God was walking with them in the, in the garden in the cool of the day and they experienced all the blessing. That's where God's instructions, God's words leave us. But look where we're left at the end of chapter 3. If you believe Satan's lies, this is where it leads. Chapter 3, verse 22, Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us and knowing good and evil. There's a deadly irony to it. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. See again, even when God sends them out of the garden, he's doing it for our good so that we don't live forever in a fallen state cut off from him. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword, turn it every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So now we're, now we're cut off from God. We're cut off from one another. Our relationship with creation is broken. We experience suffering and alienation and death, all because we believe the lie that sin, living life by our own determination, by our own paths, would lead to happiness. I just, I just want you to, I want to invite you to just have a look around, not in this room, but like mentally in your mind, have a look at the ra- uh, around at the lives of people that you know, people who bought into sin wholehearted, full bore, believing the lie that it would lead to happiness. Maybe it was, uh, maybe it was anger. And, and you, you, you buy into sinful anger and you give yourself to it. Do you know anyone that's done that? And, and it results in bitterness and seething. And they just give themselves to it and give themselves to it. Is that a happy person? Do, do you know someone who's given themselves over to the passions? Of, you, you, you live the party life. You give yourself to alcohol or to substance abuse. You give yourself over to it. Does it lead to happiness? You, you've seen this everywhere you Look, the lie is it will lead to happiness, and there might be a momentary taste of it, but in the end, it robs you of joy. Sin never leads to happiness. Here's the second truth about Satan's lies. Every bad longing can still be redeemed for good. (laughs) Everything that resonates with us as temptation for sin, can still be redeemed for good. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote this book called Screwtape Letters, and the, you've, you've probably heard me quote from it before. It, I'm, the reason I'm giving context is because the language is backwards. The, the language is ri- it's written by a demon, senior demon to a junior demon. Um, obviously, it's fictional. Uh, it's senior demon writing to a junior demon to tempt him, or to teach him how to tempt. Here's how to make humans fall. So when he speaks of the enemy, he's actually talking about God here, just so you understand how this works. The demon says this. He says, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on enemy's ground, on God's ground. Pleasure is God's ground. I know we have won, we demons, we've won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it's his, it's God's invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. Satan can't create anything. All he can do is work with what God's done in creation. 
And that includes pleasures, happiness. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Every manifestation of sin is a longing for a good thing at times or ways or degrees that God has said no. We've distorted, we've perverted in the old usage of that word. This shouldn't be that mind-blowing in one sense. Contemplate this reality. At the end of chapter 1, at the end of chapter 2, everything in creation is good. When Satan appears and tempts Adam and Eve, does he tempt them with something from outside of creation? He tempts them with what God has already looked at and declared it was very good. He uses something that's good to tempt them toward evil. So where we are tempted, it should awaken us to the real desires of our heart, to what we're truly longing for. Okay, I want to I try, this is all very heady. I want to try to make it practical, if I can, for a minute here. Again, I, don't, I, I wasn't going to pick on anger. I, I don't know why. I'll just come back to anger again here for a minute. Let's, let's think about anger. I, I'm assuming that most of us have seen someone who's given themselves over to anger, and they have grown in bitterness, and it has destroyed them. And so it can be easy to just look at anger and say, anger itself is bad. Anger is evil. But in reality, if we take a step back and evaluate what is anger, anger is a, it's a response to something. What are we responding to? We're responding to the reality that something is wrong, something is unjust, something is not the way it should be, and also it really matters. Okay? If you take away either one of those components, we're not angry. If it doesn't matter, it's like, ah, oh, well, I'm not angry. If it's not wrong, well, then you have nothing to be angry about. Anger is a response. It's a longing for justice, for order, for things to be put right, for everything to be made plain, for truth to be set forward. What we're longing for is justice. And we see it's not happening, and it matters, so we want it to happen. Anger in itself is not a wrong thing. But the degree... going to escalate the timing do we want it now the way do we want it on my terms i'm going to take it into my hands or will i leave vengeance to the lord because god said it's his See, the longing itself is is not a wrong longing and you can do the same thing with lust or with pride or with greed or with laziness as we long to love and to be loved as we long to rule over God's creation and the bounty for which he created us, as we long for the true rest that he created us for, all our desires, our longings, perverted, twisted, manipulated, so we seek them in times and ways and degrees that God has forbidden. So, the question again is what are our longings pointing us towards? If I say they can be redeemed, what do I mean? I mean they can point us to the God who created us to be satisfied in him. You can use temptations to sin to redirect your heart towards God himself. 
uh, if we take a step back outside of our current context, um, let's, let's travel back in time, hop in the DeLorean, we'll scoop back, we'll go all the way back to uh, the 4th century, the, the 360s and 70s um, and in Africa. And there's a, a young man named Aurelius Augustine, and he, together with his friends, committed a pair theft in the middle of the night. They were running around doing what hooligan kids do in the neighborhood, which has caused trouble, even though it doesn't mean it. It's not helpful, whatever. They're just doing stuff. And he goes around, and they steal a bunch of pears. Some they eat, some they throw, they throw to pigs, and some they just get rid of. And at the end, he feels terrible. And later on in life, he's reflecting, why did I do that? What was it that drew me to that activity? And he reflects on what it is that draws us to sin. And he says, you know, there's some things that have a natural beauty in themselves. The stars, the sun, the moon, creation. You look at things. Are just they're naturally beauty because they're, they're beautiful because they reflect God. But there's another kind of beauty, and, and he talks about this. He says this, thinking about that theft. He says it did not, the theft did not even have the shadowy, deceptive beauty which makes vice attractive. See that category? It's a shadowy, deceptive beauty. It's imitating something. A shadow doesn't exist unless there's something there to block it, but we're looking at the shadow when we see the beauty of the sin. And he, he contemplates what this looks like in some sins. Pride, for instance, it's a pretense of superiority. Well, we know that God himself is the one who's superior. Or ambition, which is only a craving for honor and glory. We know that God himself, the one we're designed to worship, deserves all honor and glory. Cruelty is a weapon of the powerful used to make others fear them, yet no one is to be feared but God alone. The lustful use caresses to win love, the love they crave for, yet no caress is sweeter than your charity. God's sloth poses as the love of peace, yet what certain peace is there beside the Lord? He, what's he saying? He's saying all of our desires, all of our longings, the things that show up in our sin are actually your your experience as a created being calling out to you, testifying to you that you were created for one who can ultimately make you happy. But you're looking for it in the wrong places. So he continues. He says, The soul defiles itself with unchaste love when it turns away from you and looks elsewhere for things which it cannot find pure and unsullied except by returning to you. All who desert you and set themselves up against you merely copy you in a perverse way. But by this very act of imitation, they only show that you are the creator of all nature and consequently that there is no place whatever where man may hide away from you. He's showing us the ugliness and the lie and the truth of sin Altogether, the ugliness of sin is this. We know that what we want is in God, but we want the thing without the person. So, so it's like a child wishing their parents dead so they could get the inheritance. And the lie is that somehow without him, we'll actually be able to have joy. But the truth, the truth that we can't deny is even in our longings and our impulses, we're testifying to the reality that there's a creator for whom we were created. God has made his, his case. He said, I want you to be happy. I've given you all things. Satan declares his lies. No, no. Turn away from God and find happiness there in your own ways. Which means, lastly, this. Temptation. The temptation you're going to face today and every day is a choice of who to believe. Who, who do you believe is in it for your happiness? 
three questions that hopefully will help make this practical for you as you face the temptations that you walk into this week. First question, can I trust God's heart? When, when you face a temptation this week, whether it's to uh, anger or to impassioned lust, or maybe it's not a passionate impulse, maybe it's actually the slow drift of apathy and just not caring about pursuing righteousness. Whatever the temptation is that you face, ask yourself, can I trust God's heart? Has God shown me he's good? This side of the cross, we have more reason to believe this than Adam and Eve ever did. Understand this. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, took on flesh and came and walked on earth. And at the beginning of his earthly ministry, when he came to serve and to save us, he was tempted in the wilderness like Israel was. And at the end of his earthly ministry, right before he died, he was tempted in a garden like Adam and Eve were. But unlike all of humanity before him who failed, he stood fast. He believed the heart of the Father. He did not sin, even though it meant going to the cross to suffer and die for our sins, not for his. How was he able to endure in the face of temptation? Do you remember what Hebrews 12 says? It was for the joy set before him that he endured. He believed God's heart was for him, even though the situation he was in was difficult and hard, excruciatingly hard. He knew that joy is on the other side. Joy, happiness is found in walking in obedience to his father. He trusted his father's heart. He endured the cross for sinners like us. He suffered and died in our place so that you would not have to die. You would not have to experience being cut off from the presence of God for eternity. He died in your place and rose on the third day. That if you put your trust in him, he will forever be for you. You will never again have to question or doubt. If he gave his son for you, he will always and forever be for you. He's not withheld the most precious gift of all. You go back to the gospel, friend, and you believe God's heart is for me. Can I trust his heart? Yeah, you can trust his heart. Here's the second question. Will I obey his word? Will I obey his word? Even when his commands seem to be going against my happiness, will I just obey? I trust his heart. Will I obey his words? Um, you can picture yourself maybe as a dog. Um, <laughs> for some of you, that'll be easier than others. Uh, just because you have dogs, not saying anything about you. Um, so picture yourself as a dog, and, and you're going for a walk, and you're, you're, you, you know, you're, you're, I guess in this You'd be getting walked. Okay, so you're getting walked, and, and you're going, and, and up ahead, you can, you can smell something good. Okay, so you know this path. You've been on this path before. This goes to, like, the park where you're allowed off-leash. And all you want to do is go and run and get out all the energy. And this is just going to be the height of joy for your day, to run and get out all your energy. And you smell something good. There's, like, steak. There's steak for the dogs. And in the case of our dog, pizza. There'd be pizza. It's a favorite food. Uh, don't ask how we know. And so, like... You're just so excited to get there, and it's up ahead. But as you're walking, you find all of a sudden your leash is stopped. It's, it's, it's being pulled. You can't go. 
in, in this scene, the, the dog is walking on one side, and there's a post. You ever see this? You're walking the dog, and the dog's like trying to get by, and there's a post, and the leash gets stuck on the post. And, and you're trying to bring the dog on this side. Our, our experience of facing temptation, of feeling like God's commands are against us, so often we're the dog, and we're pulling and pulling and pulling, thinking we know where we want to get. But God, who's walking us with his commands, is saying, that's not the way to the happiness. This is. And the question is simply, will we come back? Will we allow his tugging on our leash through his commandments to pull us back? Not to pull us back away from the park. There's no greater joy in all the world for a dog owner than to watch your dog run and be free and be happy. You want the same thing for them that they want for themselves. But in order for them to experience the joy, you got to come on this side. My question is, will you obey? When it doesn't look like it, and it feels like I want to be on this side of the post, and you know God's commands, will you trust his heart enough to come on the right side of the post? Will you obey his commands? Here's the third question, the last question to ask yourself. If I trust his heart, I'm thinking about obeying his commands. Do I really want to be happy? See, I I think a lot of times our greatest problem in temptation when we face temptation is that we don't want to be happy desperately enough. Because if God is the one who actually knows how we can be happy and it's by obeying his commands, when his commands are hard and we give up, frankly, friend, it's because you're pursuing cheap joy instead of real happiness. You're you're settling for drive-through instead of going home and actually making a meal. Ask yourself, how much do I actually want to be happy? If I want to be happy and I trust his heart, then I can obey his commands and I can walk in obedience. My friends, you have been lied to. Satan has said there's joy, there's happiness elsewhere. The reality is that in this creation... As those who are created in God's image and likeness by him and for him and for joy in him, here's the reality. There is only joy in obeying him and walking in his ways. Let's pray that God would give us grace to do so.